0: hello and welcome to this week's episode of the social review podcast i'm your host jasper at jasper underscore ch on twitter how did a bastard orphan son of a whore and a scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the caribbean by providence impoverished in squalor grow up to be a hero and a scholar Alexander Hamilton should be by now an incredibly familiar name to all listeners, thanks to Lin-Manuel Miranda's smash hit musical and Disney Plus's lockdown release. Um, But these past few years have also prompted something of a Hamilton renaissance within scholarship and the popular imagination, reconsidering America's history and the role of the $10 founding father within it. Um, So as you can tell, I am one of those incredibly annoying Hamilton fans, um, but I'm also deeply interested in the real man and the reality of what Hamilton did throughout his life and tenure as the first US Treasury Secretary, which is why for today's episode, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by
1: Uh, Christian Parenti. I'm a professor of economics at John Jay College, which is part of the City University of New York in New York City, and the author of Radical Hamilton, uh, Economic Lessons from a Misunderstood Founder.
0: Indeed. Christina, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, and thank you so much for writing Radical Hamilton as well. It's a, it's a really excellent book. Um, so just published by Verso this past August. Um, and we're going to be talking about today. Um, so I figured to start off with, um, I think it's safe to say that the the common conception of Hamilton is as America's first free trading capitalist um but your book argues that he fits into a somewhat different economic tradition so would you just be able to give an overview of the book and your general argument
1: mm-hmm. yeah the um what i argue yeah so he he's seen as you know um the the the, the founder of american finance and the, he's like the 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 banking sector's representative to the to the constitution in that whole moment. And um, I think that, I mean, it's not entirely untrue, but it, it misunderstands the larger thing that was going on, which was about economic development more generally and sovereignty more generally. And so how I got into this was very much by mistake. I was just reading for, you know, for fun about Hamilton. Um, probably, I have not seen the musical, um, probably around the same time, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda was a number of years ago. And I noticed reference to his, Hamilton's report on the subject of manufactures. And it sounded very statist. It sounded like a document from a kind of different political economy. Um, it sounded sort of semi-socialistic, not, not egalitarian, but just in that it was dirigiste. It was like... It was an outline for uh, a command-driven economic transformation. And um, I couldn't find much in the literature on Hamilton about this. And so then I found the document and read it, and it became clear immediately that most people who cite the document and discuss it don't read it. I mean, this goes goes back to Henry Cabot Lodge in like 1890, whatever, when he wrote a book on Hamilton, and he talks about how well-written... The report on manufacturers is, and it's not well written. It's really clotted, kind of convoluted prose, and in the 18th century style. But even for that, not so good. Um, so it was, it was clear, okay, people don't read this document, and uh, so maybe we should. And I wrote an article about Hamilton that touched on this, and became aware from the feedback to that article that he was that the report on manufacturers and these digests state driven developmentalist ideas of his were recognized in other countries and taken seriously and that that we Americans were really profoundly blind about something that's really important to the biography, the intellectual biography of one of our quote unquote founders, but also to our whole economic history. so then the idea was like, okay, well, let's republish this document since it's in the public domain, and people should be reading it. It should be available to assign to students in, in college classes and graduate classes. And then I was going to write an introduction, and then the introduction got too long and it became a book. And then the, the report on manufacturers was going to be an appendix, and the book was too long for that. So that's how the book happened. And what, what the book has become is what, what it became along the way was um, – a retelling of the story of the American Revolution, um, from the left, which has been done many times from the left, but from a sort of different, uh, a sort of different angle from the left. There, the classic retelling of the American Revolution from the left is kind of in the tradition of Howard Zinn uh, uh, or Gary B. Nash, and it's the story of the people. And class struggle and, and the revolution from below, and that 's very important and very real, and I completely agree with all that stuff, but it 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 leaves out a set of inter elite struggles and a component of the story of this revolution that that is important, not in the sense of being important, like oh, are for or against it, but that to just sort of understand what it took to break from monarchy and colonialism and, and help found the whole era of republics. I mean, that's what the American revolution for better and for worse, it, you know, helps launch the, the age of republics. So, so the book looks at the revolutionary war as an economic event, uh, which is surprisingly uh, there's not as much literature on that as you might expect. Uh, there's a lot more political history, a lot more cultural history. A lot of, a lot of left scholars starting in the 60s influenced, you know, um, to some extent by British social history like E.P. Thompson, start writing history from below but, and writing about class struggle and, and taking political economy into consideration, but not really doing economic history. And economic history as a discipline in the United States has really withered as economics as a discipline has developed this hardcore physics envy and just kind of like gone out into the realm of mathematics and and assuming away all of the interesting stuff, right, to create models that can deliver equilibrium. So economics as a discipline kind of has left history behind. And and so economic history is not as, as robust as it could be. So so the book looks at the, the the war as an economic event and its aftermath, and then the, the aftermath is the critical period, which which is very crucial uh, moment of crisis, and then at the founding of the Constitution, also as a the Constitution as an economic document, and then looks you know h- how this moment, th- this set of events and the crises and the solutions to those crises at that moment then kind of launch U.S. development along what I argue is a, the path of a kind of hidden developmentalism, a kind of developmentalism that will not speak its name. As Adolf Reed Jr., who's a political scientist and a friend and, and mentor of mine, put it when I sent him the book. He, he said, oh, yes, you know, I, one of my favorite uh, exam questions to PhD students is, Hamiltonianism has won in American history at the level of policy. Jeffersonianism has won at the level of ideology explained. But that that really sums it up. It's like our, the course of our economic development as a country has been driven by these Hamiltonian policies, which are about regulation, uh, tariffs, right? Getting prices wrong as Alice Amsden, the economist who helped sort of bring the the truth about South Korean development to an American audience in her book *Asia's Next Giant*. You know, under Reagan, South Korea was being lauded as a free market success story, and she, um, you know, she showed how it was no. It's it's a it's an industrial success story. It's it's a capitalist success story, but it, it's not has nothing to do with free markets. It's, it has everything to do with violating the rules of free markets. That's how they achieved this tremendous economic takeoff, industrial takeoff, and you it know, has nothing to do with, with, with the kind of policies the Republicans were pushing then or that they push now. So the real history of, our, of American economic development is very much the same, that it is um, not one of um, free markets and entrepreneurs, um, though that's part of it, but it's very much also about state power, protective tariffs, investment in infrastructure, investment in research and development, planning, creating tools for planning, and then using those tools to plan government quality control standards, um, uh, direct subsidies, uh, building the entire transfer transportation system and, uh, and contracting Hmm. using government contracting as the consumer, uh, like the first generation consumer. So that's the real story. It's some of the kind of stuff that Mariana might, Azukaru talks about writes about for the present, but mm. it's like, yeah, I mean you can trace that goes you know past the New Deal, past the Civil War, all the way back to the beginning. So that that in a general sense is sort of the overview of what the book does. And we can get into more specifics mm. if you mm. want me to. Dive into the details.
0: Yeah, well it the the talk about developmentalism there um spring was nicely into what I was gonna ask next. Um because everything you were just saying there about how Hamilton um, was very statist, you know, saw a role for the state as a, um, as a, as a major actor in the economy um, about economic planning. Um, I imagine to many listeners that sounds like socialism or at the very least social democracy. Um, So, so what's the distinction between that and development, developmentalism?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, what is the distinction between developmentalism and and a kind of, and and a mixed economy, socialism? I mean, at one level, there's a significant overlap, but I suppose that you could draw the the boundaries somewhat arbitrarily. But it would have to do. I, I think it would ha- it would have to do. The difference would would ha- would hinge on a commitment to equality, right, and to mm. um, a leveling of class differences. And Hamilton did not have that. He was not socialistic in that sense. He was, you know, he was um, yep. he was developmentalist. He was just going. He wanted to, you know. He thought that, you know, that the, the, the that the, the economy was essentially impoverished. It just was because it was not industrialized, and so he was, you know, he didn't really think about well, you know, how do we how do we bring up the poorest? He was he was just concerned like the whole thing has to be transformed, the whole economy has to be producing more wealth, and he was not concerned particularly with how do we make sure that it's equally distributed. He just sort of assumed mm. that benefits would flow to uh, all classes and, and um, yeah, so that, that's, you know, I think that would be the main, the main distinction, like is, is equality central to the agenda or not? And and so developmentalism and socialism share many of the same means, but they don't necessarily share the same commitments, but you can have kind of left developmentalism. I mean, a lot of, you know, socialist Hmm. projects, um, Kind of ultimately turn into sort of developmentalist projects and a lot of developmentalist projects have been pushed in part by a relationship to the left i mean the german german economic history is is driven essentially by the right and by national security interests and by imperial interests but it's also always in in kind of dialogue as it were with an internal left that's demanding revolution and, mm. and criticizing capitalism and demanding that the, the the problems of inequality and poverty be, be dealt with, and so in the interest of kind of you know national grandeur and international power, some some uh, provisions are in fact made for the working classes and the poor, and so you get some hmm. redistribution. In an instrumentalist fashion, redistribution becomes part of a kind of nationalist agenda. So there can be overlaps like that, hmm. and then you know you see uh, lots of. Socialist projects like Cuba, you know, I mean, Cuba is sort of like turning into some kind of survivalist developmentalism, kind of adopting green agriculture Mm -hmm. and also having, you know, Spanish and Italian and Canadian companies come in and set up luxury uh, hotels that the state is very concerned with extracting resources from to fund the rest of the whole project. And it's, you know, it's 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 drifting in very fundamental ways away from its socialist political economy. Mm -hmm. But its desideratum of equality is is still at least officially um, on the table.
0: Yeah, that's 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 really interesting, and I just wanted to pick on on, on two things you said. So, you said um, earlier, you were quoting your friend about how Jefferson won the battle of ideology in America, and but Hamilton won the, policy um, battle. Yeah. the battle for policy. Yeah, yeah, and and you know in um the uh, the biography of Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow that um, the musical is based on and that you um, quote as well in the book. Um, You know, he calls Hamilton the father of the American government, for example. Um, But then as you were saying there, um, the sort of explicit recognition of Hamiltonianism isn't really present in the US today, but those developmentalist ideas are present in those countries you mentioned, like Germany and South Korea. why, why do you think it is that America has got to this place where it essentially is a Hamiltonian state but doesn't, either doesn't want to recognize that or just straight up doesn't recognize that?
1: Well, I think it has to do with um, the, the contradictory role of elites to the, the larger political economy. Mm. And this, to some extent, begins in the South at the time of the revolution. And um, even as southern elites, this, the slave power, uh, the the owners of great wealth in the South, it, up up until the Civil War, even though the South was heavily underdeveloped, and today, even today, the South remains there are you know significant markers of underdevelopment in the U.S. South, even after you know 150 years of, well, you know, let's go all the way back to the New Deal. I mean, the New Deal is went full on like federal subsidy of industrialization development really starts in the South. And, you know, and that's almost hundred years old now. And it's still, there's still serious underdevelopment compared to the rest of the country in the South, but the South has always had up to the Civil war produced the richest people. The richest people in the country were always from the South and the poorest region. And so the first set of elites who push back against this are the Southern elites. And they're afraid of what this powerful government might do against their interests. So they're, they, they they want um they want it's they want protections from this powerful new state but they don't want it to infringe upon them so there is at in the at the constitutional convention John Rutledge of South Carolina at one point there's a debate about the slave trade and how long the slave trade will be allowed to exist and, and what the constitution does is it both protects and limits the slave trade it says it will it will continue until 1808, and then the doors open to close it, and it will be, and then it's closed after that. So amidst this, Relidge says, he says, you know, um, morality has nothing to do with this. Interest alone is what this discussion is about, and the real question here is whether the Southern states will even participate in this. So he was telling the Northerners, he was like, hey, 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 like. Don't get don't any crazy ideas about how you're going to use the power of this new government. Like, mm-hmm. we're out of here. Mm-hmm. We're not participating. If you impinge upon our prerogatives, forget it. And that, that logic continues up to, to, the, to today, right? I mean, elites are bailed out. They're subsidized. The entire infrastructure of the, of the society that they reap the benefits mm-hmm. from is dependent on huge amounts of public investment and planning, so they benefit from this developmentalism, but they never want to pay full freight. And they're, and they're worried that the next move of the planning apparatus will be to take away their property or to begin the process of taking away their property. So that's essentially what it comes down to, right? Uh, elites mm-hmm. today, they want when the whole economy, when the whole you know casino sector of the economy starts to implode, they want the government to come in and buy up worthless assets and put the whole financial system back on life support, which is what it did. The US federal government did that in, with the crash in 2008 and has done it again now with the coronavirus um, crash. But they don't want to pay higher taxes. They don't want uh, mm. regulations of what kind of pesticides they can and can't use or mm. uh, you know h- how they treat their workers. So the contradictions of ruling class interests Mean that they, they essentially they need Hamiltonian policies for the system to continue to function, so they make that concession. But then ideologically, they deny it because they're afraid that if a discourse that's honest about how the economy actually works develops, that it will spin out of control. At first, it's like, okay, we need turns out an in industrial civilization, uh, you know, American capitalism needs a highly educated workforce. That's best done on the public dime with, with you know uh, well-funded public universities. Okay, then what? And all the students should have free housing. Okay, what what next? Then maybe housing in general should be you know decommodified. And that's like, whoa, whoa, where does this stop? And then oh, you know, uh, workers are actually more productive in creating wealth and increasing human well-being when they're not treated like garbage we need to raise wages and in fact we actually need to have workers on the boards of these corporations that have made the the one percent uh, so wealthy and then well, wait wait, wait a minute. Oh, maybe we actually need to have workers own the companies <laughs> through their pensions and maybe, maybe this worker and public ownership should be the majority ownership of these companies and that private profiteering speculators who own shares should always be kept to like a minimal component. Or oh, Maybe we should do away with that class entirely, right? This is what they see, that, that there's a slippery slope. It starts with rational developmentalist policies of like planning for growth, but where does it end? It could very well mm-hmm. end with the liquidation of the 1% as a class, not necessarily as people mm-hmm. like up against the wall liquidation, but I mean, you know, you could imagine a kind of, particularly under the context of climate change, a sort of left green modernity that's committed to electricity and higher education and, and uh, not dev- doesn't, doesn't think it will be uh, a progress if we devolve into sort of like uh, uh, hunter and gatherers, uh, you know, post-apocalyptic hunter and gatherers on a uh, totally toxic landscape. And, and we're like, okay, well, we really want to keep this whole thing, modern civilization, on the rails, and uh, we're going to have to take drastic measures. We're going to have to plan a lot of things, and that includes planning the one percent, the capitalist class, like mm. essentially out of existence. I mean, you could I mean, that that could easily happen under um, maybe not easily. That's ridiculous, but that that could conceivably <laughs> happen. It you know in a moment of really profound crisis. I mean, you look what happen- What's happening in. Just stop me if you don't want me to go off onto these other things. No, 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 no the keep going. The book too, but keep going. I mean, right now in California, we have a situation where insurance companies, there's, you know, mm. the urban wilderness interface has always been or has been increasingly problematic in terms of fire out west. Yes,
0: and, I've noticed, yeah. And
1: insurance companies in the last decade or so have basically just been trying to get out of insuring homes in these mm. fire prone areas. Now we've got, due to climate change, these dry thunderstorms and and this heat wave and there's lightning strikes going on all over California and so the fire danger is not just on the urban wilderness interface but like it you know all over suburbia leafy suburbia which is now you know tinder dry and Mm. insurance companies basically just want to walk away they want to be like sorry we're not going to offer home insurance anymore which they've done on flood insurance and flood insurance in the United States is basically non-existent or you get it from the federal government. So flood insurance is essentially nationalized. They're trying to get, the insurance company is trying to get out of insuring fire loss. The state of California has forced them to stay in the market. And I'm just recounting what I read recently in the New York Times right over here. so I don't know, and it didn't say whether it was the legislative or whether it was a kind of a lawsuit, but for some reason this this stopgap measure is gonna uh, expire in a, a couple of months. You could imagine a situation where the insurance companies do in fact pull out and be like, we're no, we're no longer going to offer insurance here. And that, uh, I mean, the Californian economy could collapse if the, the homeowning class, which is, you know, despite the tremendous inequality in the U S it is like 64% of the population owns homes. I believe it's something like that. And it's a lot of people. What, nationally. Yeah there's a lot, I mean, a, a huge amount of like what the wealth of regular people is tied up in their little nest eggs, their little homes. And, oh, if, that, okay. and if that's not, if that's not, yeah, I mean, we didn't, we never had the council housing, the kind of, right? When Thatcher came in, like mm. 50% of housing in the UK was owned through councils, was publicly owned. But yeah. Um, yeah. So what we've had instead in the US is basically publicly subsidized uh, mortgages for the private ownership mm. of homes, right? So our the, the socialistic element has been hidden behind private banks, but it's actually all these federal mm. guarantees has created mm. this class of homeowners, because as FDR said, he said the class of homeowners can never be conquered, right? If everybody owns a little, their little tiny piece of the rock, they all feel that they're bought into it, right? They're much more willing to go mm-hmm. defend Rockefeller's interests. Um, if they've got mm. their little, you know, $60,000 one bedroom house. Um, anyway, but, but you can imagine how, like, the state is forced mm. to step in and and nationalize insurance for housing. Well, then, what comes mm. next? Obviously, planning. We're actually already seeing that around flooding. The Trump administration, the hardcore free market Trump administration, has recently taken steps to impose rational planning on the distribution to, to go to go along with the distribution of flood insurance. So. It, for many years, it was the federal government would just literally repay, would pay again and again for people to rebuild in flood-prone areas. Totally ridiculous, insane. Mm-hmm. And finally, they said, okay, well, we're, we're not going to insure you if you build your Mick Mansion in a flood zone. That's on you. However, if you want to relocate, blah blah blah, and we, we will pay you the value of your flooded out, moldy Mick Mansion, which the local redevelopment agency will tear down and turn back into a wetland, and you can, you know, then go. Redeploy that value somewhere else. So, even under these deranged conditions, we're already seeing the slippery slope, subsidy, planning, uh, you know, unwinding the market, rolling back the logic of the market. So that's what elites live in fear of. And that, and mm-hmm. and the, the 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 moment of of climate crisis, which is sort of bookends this book, is not mm-hmm. discussed at all, but sort of mentioned in the beginning, mentioned it at the end. You know, I mm-hmm. think that, that is a, uh, we're, we're headed into and we're, we're in the early stages of types of environmental and political economic crisis that force the state to return and force a return of planning and force nationalization and socialization not just of losses but increasingly of the investment process and what goes with that is inevitably a recognition of the necessity of planning yeah.
0: Yeah, i i i didn't expect we'd be talking about flooding on on in this podcast, but that's a it's a fantastic example of um of the that slippery slope that you described, and um it, it reminded me of of Hamilton's own logic of with you 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 mentioned um, people are more likely to go and you know feel bound up in the national project if they own their own little home, um, and that was the thinking behind the constitutional project. You bind the states together through um debt and economic interdependence and create a strong central state that means they're all bought in um and that that leads nicely into something else i wanted to talk about and you mentioned how the book touches on the climate crisis but doesn't go into it too much detail um hamilton was obviously an incredibly authoritarian um, political thinker, um, in that he he had no time for decentralization or localism. Um, and he was, as I said, he was all about building that strong central state um, to direct economic planning. Um, that was his thing. And that's what the Reporter Manufactures touches on. It's all about and he wanted, sort of government and, as and the central to, engine. There
1: was an international component to this. He didn't want it just for its own sake, mm. but he wanted it because he wanted a state that was going to be strong enough to mm. quote unquote. Teach the assuming older brother, i.e., Britain and the European powers, a lesson to like to keep to to, to, you know, to keep their hands off of this yeah. post-colonial project. Sounds ridiculous to say that about the mighty United States of America today, but yes, <laughs> once upon a time it was an underdeveloped post-colonial seat of the pants operation that very easily could have fallen apart into multiple pieces. Yeah.
0: Yes and you, and you say in the book how you treat capitalism and the modern state as historically contingent um and certainly learning about the founding of America you do get a deep sense of god this was incredibly contingent um this could have fallen apart had Hamilton uh never left the Caribbean or had Hamilton died in the um in the American Revolution under George Washington um, maybe it could have fallen apart you do get a, a great sense um, reading radical hamilton and just learning about um, his life in general how deeply dependent america's historical outcome is on him and on things such as the report on manufacturers and his tenure as treasury secretary um, so that leads to me asking what do you think we can learn from Hamilton's political thinking and his authoritarianism, authoritarianism and applying it to modern problems like the climate crisis? Because obviously, as, he, as as I said, he didn't have any time for decentralization, localism. I'm assuming you yeah. don't either.
1: Well, it, I mean, his authoritarianism should not be emulated. I mean, that was not a good thing. But his his opposition to local power was mm. not necessarily... To call that authoritarian is to some extent to slip into the old democracy versus aristocracy dichotomy sure, sure. that has marked a lot of American historiography. This is mm-hmm. one of the classic sort of divisions in American historiography, and I attempt to take that on and disabuse readers of that in this book. Because enough. the Hamilton was in favor of creating a strong central state. So readers, maybe listeners should know that, that the, the sort of the basic outline that there's 13 colonies, especially since this is a UK audience primarily. There are 13 mm. colonies. They're all um, autonomous, and they come together in a defense pact to resist the British. They the grievances that drive the American Revolution are multiple. There is, uh, you know, in the south, the southern elites are concerned about uh, in infringement of their right to own slaves, there has been in 1772 the Somerset case, which affirms that England is free of slaves. That no one, that anyone yeah. who arrives in England is is free. As the judge says, the air of England is too sweet to be, you know, for anyone to be a slave. So you step foot on England, you're free. And this mm-hmm. this was this case came about because uh, a slave owner from the Caribbean came to back to London and he brought with him his butler uh, an enslaved person who was like his you know whatever his his trusted um, butler manservant and this guy was you know out and about in London and met some abolitionists and these abolitionists said you know you're not you, this is illegal uh, I mean slavery is like what slavery is outlawed sometime in in uh, after the Norman conquest right I think I think there's an official outlawing of slavery in like twelve oh two or something I forget what the date is, but
0: mm.
1: it then erodes and um, we're saying, no, no, there's no you, the British Empire has slavery, but England does not have slavery. And so this case goes all the way up to Lord Mansfield. Uh, and indeed there there is one piece at the very center of the British Empire, England, where there is no slavery where slavery is abolished. And this sends shockwaves through elites. And in the United States or what will become the United States, you have some of the richest people in the British Empire, for example, Henry Lawrence, who will become president of the Continental Congress, whose father of John Lawrence, who's a very close friend of Alexander Hamilton's,
0: yeah.
1: one of the largest slave owners, in the America's slave trader. At, at times he's he's the um, and he is I mean, the idea that, whoa, that you can like you're one of the richest people in this empire and you are not able to bring your servants with you back to England? I mean, where does this stop? Mm -hmm. So there's this concern about emerging threats to slavery in the South. There's the the mercantile and nascent manufacturing interests in the Mid-Atlantic and Northeast where British mercantilism is putting limits and fetters on the development of colonial manufacturing. For example, there's lots of beaver pelts and a hat industry develops to turn these beaver pelts into hats. Mm. And so then export a much more high value product and make more money. And the um, British mercantilist laws prevent that and shut that down. Uh, iron foundries begin and they're forced to mm-hmm. shut down. So various types of nascent manufacturing, this is like pre-factories, like workshop level manufacturing, are developed yeah. getting shut down. Uh, the trade with, uh, the The American colonies have very robust shipping, partly because of all the wood it's very, you know really cheap to build ships here and so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of shipbuilding and there's a lot of people, a lot of primarily men working at sea and and American shippers would like to be free of the British navigation acts, which uh, confine them to you know uh, a network of British ports and stuff like that and then there's also settlers both rich speculators such as George Washington and poor Scots-irish type you know um, squatters essentially who want to move west over the Appalachian mountains and possess the land of native american groups over there and the the french and indian war as we call it in the united states the seven years war which was actually 9 years and was a global conflict Gee has been Mm. triggered actually by George Washington as a young surveyor running into a party of of, of sort of, you know, embedded French officers with uh, Native American auxiliaries. And there's a firefight and the war jumps off from that. And at the end of the war, there's the, the uh, in uh, uh, 1763, the, Mm. the, I forget what the treaty's called, but it, it creates the proclamation line along the ridge of the Appalachian mountains. And it says, you know, British settlement has to stop there. And the UK is very concerned. It doesn't want to provoke another war with France by allowing these rich spe- speculators and these penniless would-be squatters to both go over there and independently or together make trouble with the Native American groups that are there. So the colonists are feeling constrained by this, and that's what causes the rebellion. The rebellion jumps off 1773. You've got uh, Boston Tea Party by 1774 six there's fighting um 1775 is the first fighting around boston and Mm. by 1776 there's been the declaration of independence and the war is up and running the british have been pushed out of boston they then come down they occupy new york george washington comes down the continental army has formed and all of these these rebellious colonies have come together under the Articles of Confederation, which which is a loose defense compact. It creates Congress, which is the only national institution along with the Continental Army. And Congress mm. doesn't have the right to tax, let alone plan yeah. or anything like that. This is- And the that's stru- the key detail. Yeah. This is the structure that, that guides mm. the American side through the war. And at the end of the war, and the war acts as a tremendous economic stimulus. There's mm. all sorts of consumption going on and all sorts of like, production going on because of the war. You've got these two foreign armies in there by the end, the British and the French, bringing in all sorts of hard currency and, you know, consuming vast amounts of everything in you know, from salt and fodder for their animals to like lead and gunpowder and paper. I mean, you know, whiskey, everything they can get. And um, this Even so even as the war involves destroying means of production and the burning of towns occasionally and stuff like that, it's also this tremendous stimulus. So you get a kind of economic boom during the war, the war stops, and there's a tremendous economic crash. We now, Mm. it's taken economic historians, you know, quite a while to sort of reconstruct and really produce the data sets from old ledger books that can indicate what happens in the economy. And we now realize that the the crash after the war was a depression as bad probably as the Great Depression of the nineteen thirties. Yeah, the economy goes from an inflationary spiral to a deflationary spiral, and immediately various states start imposing uh, tariffs against each other. There's all sorts of land conflicts develop, not just between white settlers and Native Americans, but between rival groups of white settlers backed by rival groups of speculators. There's violence between self-emancipated people of African descent in the South living as Maroons and the the slave powers who want to um, stamp out this example of black freedom and and also Mm. re-enslave these people. And there's all of this, uh, these colonies are, now states are heavily indebted and they're trying to pay off their debts. And that involves extracting money from the economy and paying it to speculators rather than, you know, investing it. Um, And all this culminates in Shays' Rebellion, which happens Mm -hmm. in Western Massachusetts, where farmers, small independent farmers, are being hammered by this tax requisition of uh, 1785. This Congress puts out this, like, request to the states for a huge tax payment. And so in Massachusetts, it's basically in 1786 that this request is being extracted from the population and there's a foreclosure crisis and these so uh many of them are former you know veterans of the american Revolution. they're losing their farms and so they they organize mass protests and they start by just shutting down courts they're just like you know ejecting the judges and the lawyers and they arm themselves and this protest movement turns into an actual guerrilla conflict that involves two different like force on force battles and lots of Mm. sniping and assassinations and kidnappings and murder and barn burning and terroristic night letters and this sort of stuff. The Shaysites named for Daniel Shays, who was a captain in the revolutionary army are Mm. vanquished by the, by essentially a private, not essentially by, by actually a private army Mm. that is mustered by the elites on the coast around Boston who are involved in shipping, and and many of whom have bought up this state debt and are the ones who are gonna be getting paid when this debt is paid off and paid down. And so this this is called the critical period, all this tumult and chaos. Mm. And Mm. Shays' Rebellion is the capstone to the critical period. And it's in response to that that the Constitutional Convention is called. And the plan is to basically rewrite the art, they, they're going to quote, unquote, amend the Articles of Confederation. But really, it's, yes. the plan is to basically scrap the Articles of Confederation mm. and create the U.S. Constitution. And that's what they yep. do. And there's lots of conflict over what this new state will be and how strong it will be. Mm. And the, the, the Federalists around Hamilton, and particularly the developmentalist element of the Federalists, Win just enough for Hamilton to then pursue this vision of essentially a, t- a planned economic transformation away from an agrarian and export-dependent economy towards a mixed but manufacturing-based economy with a huge, integrated, and healthy internal market. This is his vision, and he 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 achieves it essentially. Even though most of the literature says, and then he has this crazy sort of statist idea in this wild document and, you know, nothing comes of that, but it's like, no, actually that actually is the document that was followed in Mm. large part by the federal government. And then very much so by the States, um, for a long time. So, um, so yeah, that's sort of like, that's, that's that's the American revolution. Yeah, it's a (laughs) long, like all revolutions. It's important. I I mean, I know a lot of Americans, even well-educated Americans are unaware of how messy the American revolution was and all revolutions are like that. I think we, at least in this country, we get this idea that the way revolutions happen is that a bunch of usually guys, you know, get together and they think up some idea, a plan, and then they declare that they're going to do that. And then they go to war and either get defeated or they win. And then they do the thing they originally thought up. And, you know, that's, that's rarely the case. It's like, the Russian revolution, the Mexican revolution, the American revolution, the English revolution, the French, the French revolution. revolution, it's are totally chaotic. And like, yeah, wh- where they start and where they end is like they're frequently, it's hard to figure out the relationship. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And that, um, I mean, thank you for, <laughs> thank you for, thank you for explaining. It's, um, it, it's, it's, it's very important context for, um, how the report emerged and um, how America's economy emerged because as we said it was all deeply contingent and um you you know you, you you very keenly emphasize in the book that um both capitalism and the modern state are predicated upon war um as war being the driver of economic development and political modernization um and you know you also wrote um quote violence is at the heart of the state's form function and purpose it's you know it's like the leviathan thomas hobbes's leviathan it's it's violence is is key and um you really do get the impression both from the book and um you know the other literature Hamilton that the war of independence um was so key and integral in shaping Hamilton's thinking on this of um seeing all that bloodshed and that disunity and you know you go into detail about how the states just like couldn't talk to each other. Like Washington would send off letters to Congress, being like, "We need all this stuff because my men are mutinying, and everyone's mm-hmm. dying, and there's disease everywhere." And, be- and he just wouldn't get responses, or would take it ages. Um, you know, there were all these different rebellions that almost succeeded that Hamilton had to go and quash um, when he's like, you know, twenty-three. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's maddening. Um, but that leads nicely back to the climate crisis and today because i mean we're at a well i mean um you're in america america's had a tumultuous year to say the least Mm -hmm. um i mean you're it's just like you know constant protest violence on the streets Two hundred thousand americans are dead um a climate crisis that is getting worse and worse as you said california's on fire florida was on fire earlier this year i mean it's Yep. I mean, it's pretty terrible, isn't it? It was um, unparalleled, yeah. yeah. yes. Yes, um, and I mean, I, I'm, I'm not saying, oh, the conditions are ripe for civil war or whatever. I mean, some people are talking about that, but you know, what I'm more getting onto is that, do you think that this period of such turmoil and violence and chaos can be a sort of similar instigator for a new vision of economic planning, um, such as, um is being proposed for um to deal with the climate crisis um you know um being proposed by politicians mm-hmm. on the left like um Bernie Sanders and Alexander Ocasio-Cortez um but also now seemingly firmly within the camp of Joe Biden um so I mean do, do you think that this can act in place of war or are they too different uh
1: this crisis no I do I do think that um that the climate crisis is sort of like war. So yeah, you you mentioned Mm. that in your question about how war is central, this thesis. One way to get into that is that, so the report begins with an attack on Adam Smith uh, and his free market notions. But one thing that Hamilton does take from Smith is that Smith talks about the need for a state to borrow, right? And, and the, mm. the the creation of a financial or credit system is essential in Hamilton's thinking because it's what will fund industrialization. And industrialization is key because it's what will produce the wealth that will then empower the state to survive and maintain its sovereignty. Mm. And during it, so Smith says every state has to go into debt and it has to have good credit because even if you can operate without that in good times, when war comes, all states need to borrow. And if you can't borrow, then you can't build defenses, and then you're, 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 you're not gonna survive. So yeah. environmental crisis is, is a similar in that regard. It's, a, it's these shocks that force the state to borrow and also to plan and to produce and to build. Yeah. So yeah, I, I do think that, that uh, the climate crisis can, is going to act, is going to have the effects of, of a war to some extent. And we're either going to rise to the challenge and meet it with planning and economic restructuring uh, and a whole new set of technologies and style and patterns of investment coming out of it, or we're going to fail and we're going to disintegrate into, you know, um, something that's more and more dysfunctional and looks more and more like state failure. So mm. yes. um that that is that's the sort of the subtext of of the argument
0: mm, yeah and um just um thinking about slight like ch- changing tax slightly but thinking about um uh disunity and 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 those kind of ideas there um there's a bit at the beginning of the book where you um refer to the contemporary left's sort of um religiosity as you say Mm. for concepts like decentralization localism and individual empowerment um as we've said hamilton didn't have any time for decentralization or localism um but i definitely agree that there is a sort of implicit um acknowledgement amongst portions of the contemporary left perhaps a majority that those concepts are inherently good um, and that's very pronounced in the UK. Um so think regular listeners of the podcast and readers of the website will probably notice that we fall into this too. Um and I think that's only been exacerbated by our government's response to COVID-19, which has been criticized as overly centralized in many cases. It would have been better if they devolved more of the response and powers to councils um mm-hmm. and local authorities. Um I just I just wanted to ask, um, like thinking about the US left, um, because often People in the UK think, "Oh, the UK and the US left are just like you know, it's just the same, but we're in different countries." When that's not really true, and they both emerge from you know the people and the movements emerge from different contexts. Um, so, are are you know are those are those concepts like greater decentralization and localism quite powerful on the US left at the moment, or is is it not yes. really? Is that like yes. not really? Oh, they are. Yeah,
1: king. no, <laughs> lo- localism is is hu- yeah. Yeah. Decentralization, localism, like anarcho-liberalism. This is a huge yeah. element in the American left. And, and I think it's, um, it's highly problematic. I mean, i it, yeah. it's not that like, Oh, everything should be centralized, especially not implementation, right? It's, it's better to have um, local implementation and, and the kind of embedded knowledge that goes with that. Right. I mean, like council housing in the UK, right. You get the local council, builds it, manages it, but it doesn't, it's not left to its own devices to come up with all the money. There's redistribution through the central government, or there was when it was robust. So, yeah, I mean, part of, part of what um, I'm trying to disabuse readers of is the idea that the local is always better and more democratic because American history is full of very regressive and oppressive forms of local control. Segregation. Was usually local in origin. It was communities at the level of towns and counties that pushed a lot of this. Um, local, I mean, the Black Lives Matter movement is pushing for, you know, local, like community justice. And I know what they mean is like an accountability to the people. Like, what they mean is they don't want this alien force that's totally unaccountable to the people, you know, abusing people and killing people. But the idea that, like, local control is automatically great. I mean, uh, local justice is the tradition of vigilantism and lynching in the US as well. It can be, um, you know, there could be progressive versions of it, but, but it can also be, you know, there's a long, long history of communities coming together to torture and kill and terrorize and segregate at a local level. So the idea that like the local is full of good ideas and nice people is is not borne out by history. And so what Hamilton was, I mean Hamilton did not like state governments. He thought state governments were basically repositories of second-rate men. They were all, you know, men who had the official power even if they had, you know, brilliant and powerful wives behind them like John Adams and Abigail Adams. Abigail Adams really had the the brain for money. She was the great speculator in the family. But and he would look at these these state governments, and, and see that they're not, they're not inherently democratic. It's just this local gang of self-dealing um, landlords and merchants and speculators, you know, with their little local prerogatives. And there's nothing inherently democratic about that. So why should we? Why should we cede power to a bunch of local gangs, essentially? And I mean, state governments still like that in the U.S. I mean, state state governments are just these repositories of Incompetence and corruption, um, and with the decline of mainstream metro daily newspapers, our coverage of the kind of the shenanigans of state governments is suffering badly. But I mean, it's comical, it's insane, and there's so much of it that it barely breaks national news. And and so you know the you know how bad your state government is. Another Adolf Reed quote from his father. His his fa- one of his father's favorite quotes was that the worst state government in the country is always the one of the state you're currently living in because, and that, that says something about sort of the nature of sort of the parochial nature of state politics and state news. And it's like, you live in New Jersey, you read about this, you're like, no place could be as messed up as New Jersey. Well, you move next door to New York and then suddenly it's like, what, this has been going on for years? Like three men in a room decide all this is self-dealing garbage. The money's gone. What is this? You know, then move on to some other state. So yeah, he, um, so I'm just trying to push back against that. Now, that's not to say, like, no, everything should be centralized, blah, 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 because, no, that leads to bureaucratic ineptitude. But just that there's nothing, scale does not automatically translate into democracy. You also have to love good ideas, right, and a good agenda. Bad bad interests and agendas can attach to local power structures or national power structures. So that's, that's the the. the point there. And and the the reason I think that's important is as you suggested in your question is that in the American left there's a real fetishism of this. Uh you know, and it comes out of the sixties. And Schumacher's um EF Schumacher's book Small is Beautiful and the kind of back to the land movement. And I'm sympathetic to all that. I was raised in primarily in southern Vermont and on the coast of Maine and, you know, uh kind of part of the you know a child of that, that kind of bohemian back to the land. Moment in the seventies, and I like that, and I like town meeting in New England here, and I, you know, I see the the importance of local democracy. I'm not against the local, but I'm also acutely aware, having been raised in communities, small towns, that they can be incredibly oppressive. Right? I mean, few institutions are as proficient in their surveillance as as small towns. You know, I was like, oh. I noticed you were driving your mother's car. Uh, wh- where were you guys going? You know? It's like I, I it, part of me would prefer to just have, you know, some anonymous computer track my movements in a vehicle rather than a bunch of little old ladies who were concerned. Were you guys buying beer at the general store? I, I, I I'm not sure you were all eighteen. What's going on? You know, that kind of thing. That was a long time ago, so I'm over it now, obviously.
0: The thing that sort of looms a little bit over all of this. Um, of course, is you guys have got your presidential election in just under two months. Um, how are you feeling about it? What's your What's your take? Well, if you've got one yeah, at the moment,
1: um, I'm um, I'm very worried. Um, partly because in in 2016, mm. everybody assumed that Trump was going to lose, and um, the only person I yep. know who didn't assume that was my wife, and um, she was right. And I live in the country and there, I mean, Trump rules the countryside. There are Trump signs everywhere in Southern New England. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, but more importantly is that the Democrats, you know, I mean, Joe Biden, his, his track record in terms of progressive policy is, is anemic at best. He was the author of the War on Crime um, and author of it, Kamala Harris didn't win the vice presidential candidate. She didn't win any delegates. She could, you know, she came in like third in California. She's not a popular politician. They have immediately agreed to some pretty regressive politics. One thing they did was they, they took, they agreed not even to include in the party platform and the party platform is a notional document. They wouldn't even include in that, a pledge to end subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. You know, I would have assumed that they would include that and then immediately throw it out the window when they got in power, but they won't even, they won't even pay lip service to some of the most important issues. So the level of enthusiasm for the Democrats is, is pretty low. And um, uh, the U S is in a weird, in a weird situation. State. I began this book with this epigraph, but time and design, they wanted them cut down, so we cut them down, yeah. but um, I'm going to read them to you. Men are not gentle, frequent, uh, d- gentle, friendly creatures wishing for love, who simply defend themselves if they are attacked, but that a powerful measure of desire for aggression has to be reckoned as part of their instinctual endowment. The result is that their neighbor is to them not only a possible helper or sexual object, but also a temptation to them, to gratify their aggressiveness on him, to exploit his capacity for work without recompense, to use him sexually without his consent, to seize his possessions, to humiliate him, to cause him pain, to torture and kill him. And then it it goes on. Homo homini lupus, man is wolf to man. Who can deny in the face of all history and their own experience, you know, like how people treat each other. And so Freud roots that in this kind of like, the inst- like there's an aggressive instinct. Then he contrasts that, and I contrast it with you know, eros, the other drive, which is to like bring people together and right. Say so and now, and now I think the the meaning of the evolution of civilization is no longer obscure to us. It must present the struggle between eros and death, between the instinct of life and the instinct of destruction, as it works itself out in the human species. This struggle is what all life essentially consists of. And the evolution of civilization may therefore simply be described as the struggle for life of the human species. So there's a way I bring that up because there's um, what, what I feel in this moment in the US is that there's a kind of death drive unfolding, that people are so alienated and angry that even on the left and the right, there's this desire to tear the whole thing down, that people like you get a sense, particularly among like men, that there's this desire for civil war. And it frequently masks itself as a fear of civil war. But it's really like people are so alienated and they're so frustrated that they, and, and, and they're so bereft of decent ideas and real history and a clear path forward that they rather unwittingly and in a kind of muddled fashion are just giving into the death drive. They just sort of want to see the current arrangements burnt to the ground. So that is, that's really dangerous, that mood, that feeling. Um, and then Trump's rhetoric. So I guess part of what I'm saying is also is you can't just blame it all on Donald Trump. It's like late neoliberal capitalism, mm-hmm. the inequality it has produced, the, the the techno bureaucratic enclosure, the endless frustrations, the alienation, this COVID crisis, I mean, the mismanagement of the health aspect of it, but then also the total, in my opinion, total insane overreaction to some extent on the economic lockdowns. The, I mean, the, the country is in a, in, a, in a seriously sick way. and um, And probably worst case scenario is that it's a close election that, the mail-in ballots. I mean, Democrats are taking. Don't don't get me wrong. COVID is a very serious disease. It's essentially three or four times worse than a very bad flu. But uh, like yep. the ACLU in Kentucky, pushing for mailing ballots, mail uh, mail ballots, also pushed to close ninety percent of the polling stations. This is insane, and this is going to backfire. On the Democrats. So you can see a situation where it's a close election, Mm -hmm. lots of Democrats, because COVID has been politicized, vote by mail. Republicans, because it has been politicized, resist the fear, vote in person. Regardless of who wins the actual vote, all of the uh, ballots cast at the polls are counted first. There's, uh, I mean, the worst crisis is that constitutionally, when there is a tie, The decision is thrown to the House of Representatives, but one third of the seats of the House of Representatives are also up for grabs. And we could have a situation where we don't actually know which party controls the House of Representatives. And amidst this, Trump has his patriot thugs, you know, uh, out in the streets, you know, uh, there's, you know, left wing kind of antifa suicidal types as well. I mean, you just listen to the interview Vice did with that Antifa guy who shot the Patriot Prayer guy. I mean, that, that is Thanatos talking, mm-hmm. man. That's a guy who, like, that's the death drive. That's the left iteration of the death drive. So, um, I, I mean, very, very bad stuff could happen. And, and probably, you know, it, wouldn't be, it would be like some sort of, like, version of Bush, Bush v. Gore, but not, like, it'll be thrown to the Supreme Court, you know. They'll be violence not like in in bush versus gore in broward county florida there was pushing and shoving and frat boys showed up from the right and were yelling but this would be much more dynamic and and um kinetic than that and in multiple places the decision would have to be thrown to the supreme court the liberals have set up the supreme court i don't know why they do this but i don't know but it's just some sort of psychological tick but um You know, Rachel Maddow of MSNBC, these types, they have been so happy that uh, Chief Justice Roberts has voted with the liberals on occasion, that Gorsuch, who's a Trump appointee, has voted with the liberals on one or two cases. And they've been, oh, see, the court has this mellowing effect, and and these guys aren't going to be so bad. Well, and they've been essentially legitimizing the Supreme Court. And, you know, I'll bet you, if it's thrown to the Supreme Court, they will... Give the election to Trump and he will have a second term and it will be like um, even more illegitimate and contested. And, and the kind of like this like necrotic, you know, mood of like growing thanatos will just continue. That's my that's my version of the worst case scenario. Best case scenario is that the Democrats actually... Get their shit together. I don't know if they're swearing loud on your podcast, but they get their shit together and they Great and they, they make a play for some of these swing voters in swing counties and swing states. And that means offering some class agenda to them, right? I mean, speaking to these sort of former union members in Rust Belt states and 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 appealing to them somehow uh, and getting them to vote for the Democrats. And if that you know can pull away Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, a couple of these swing states, then you know, the Electoral College will, will go to the Democrats and, and we'll have a kind of pathetic neoliberal triage. Um, but so that's my take on it. It's, it's, it doesn't look good either way, in other words.
0: And on that uplifting note, uh, <laughs> um, we'll have to wrap it up there. But um, thank you so much for coming on um, and talking about the book. Um,
1: well, thank you very much for having me on.
0: Where, where can people buy it? Um, is a plug. um
1: they can buy it they can buy it on the verso website they can buy it on amazon you could ask your local bookstore to to order it um buy it wherever you buy books i mean verso is a is a british publisher so yes, it is. um oh, they they have wide distribution in the uk so whatever your preference is you know fantastic. amazon is evil but it's a pretty easy way to buy
0: books so. <laughs> Well, I bought my copy on the Verso website and arrived in just a couple of days. So, I recommend Verso as that's well. great. That's good to know. And another episode of the Social Review podcast comes to an end. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to Christian uh, for coming on and talking to me. Um, it was a really interesting conversation. If you enjoyed it, then you can go buy Radical Hamilton, as we spoke about there at the end, uh, from Verso Books and all good bookstores. Apologies for the very, very apparent audio change, um, audio quality change between the bulk of the episode and me at the end there. There was a um, slight issue of my microphone and Zoom. Sorry about that. I don't know what's. I just got a message saying your microphone is now switched to this other one. I don't know. I don't know what the problem is there um but now at least now we can hear each other we move etc thanks once again to christian thanks very much to my friend alex who recommended me the book in the first place um she wanted to shout out on this podcast so there you go (laughs) um and you will all hear us again this week or next week whatever the next episode of the podcast is thanks again goodbye